All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan, and welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, John Aplanel. John is president and founder of Tightlines Advisors, a consultancy focused on optimizing manufacturing performance. So, John, welcome to the show. Lisa, thank you very much. I'm del- absolutely delighted to be here. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you focusing on manufacturing with tight lines. I'll try to give you the quickest version I can. I was involved with a family business, Precision Valve Corporation. My father actually invented the aerosol valve. And looking at the copy of the patent in front of me right now, he, he received the patent on Mar- March 17th, 1949. He, Applin Alpes Swiss for the St. Patrick's Day, I'm sure it was a bit of a celebration for my father that afternoon. He started their business. We ended up with 22 locations around the world, served most of the major customers, the S.C. Johnsons, the Unilevers, the, the Record Ben Keysers, the who's who of really who's in the consumer packaging goods. A lot of the products they had and were in aerosol form. And he passed away just coming up. In fact, his 101st birthday was yesterday. He wow. passed away 20 years ago on, at the end of August 2003. And at that point, if I can just drop some numbers in, we were doing about $250 million worth of sales. We got some family dynamics, a sister that didn't necessarily, brother-in-law that didn't necessarily buy into what we were doing, where we we're going, confidence in myself, et cetera. And it's not a complaint about it. It's everybody has the right to. So we made the deal valuation and allocation assets, et cetera, and got that behind us in 2006 and continued on. And in 2008, now this is an Apple, mind you, we went from 250 to the end of our fiscal year in 2008, we got to 343 million, which I'm proud of myself and the team on what we were able to do. That was a fiscal year was May 31st, 2008. You might remember a little turbulence, 2008, 2009. We went from about $343 million in sales, leveraged to do the family dynamics that needed to be done, 343 to $290 And it damn near killed us. Wow. Uh, from that, we brought the guys in to do the uh, restructuring. We got guys in to, we actually brought partners in the private equity world. And, and through that, you just, you watch, I understand it. It's receivables, it's payables, it's inventories. It's, what are we going to cut? What are we going to cut? What are we going to cut? And I, and I get it as we went through it. But we were two, three years into this process and we had an opportunity to go in our plant in South Carolina. We had guys, service was an issue. So we we're raising inventories and cash was the issue. So we we're driving inventories down again. And the organization was just getting pulled back and forth. Again, I fully realized I was captain of the ship at the time that created the change. But I had the opportunity to go down to a plant in South Carolina. And it's a great group of people. Was a great group of people, still is. And what we decided to do was really focus on productivity. And what we did was we went and started looking at the obstacles of productivity, material losses, health and safety issues, downtime, quality issues. And we did it by various part series. We did it in a Pareto. We went after the biggest issues first. And what we found out without putting capital 
without throwing real capital investment with it. We made some changes to molds. We did some, while the leadership at the time was talking about, we don't have enough capacity. We got to spend $440,000 for a mold in a machine. For $20,000, we were getting the changes in a mold in, that we made in a mold that were 30 or 40 years old that my father actually designed that we were getting about 50% output out of, took us eight hours to set up. Within 30 seconds, a mold was running at 100% capacity. It was a phenomenal turnaround. We said that if we continued the path we were going and what we were able to do, get all these changes and the next ones on our list, we would reduce the cost of goods 10 to 12% in one year alone with a lot more work to do. But with that would allow us to, obviously, you would get more output in less hours. So you reduce your amount of labor hours. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute. The other part was because the productivity was greater, your lead time was reduced. And your on-time delivery was more consistent. Also, we were going after qualitative problems. And as you as a manufacturer, if something happens internally, it's eventually going to get outside. But we were able to reduce the amount of qualitative issues that we had internally. And therefore, external failure rate drops. So our competitive position was enhanced, along with the greater profitability, which at the time, if we were going back in and we're looking to sell, which I understand that was part of the deal when we brought in our rescuers in the private equity world. But now we had a real chance to show and to whoever was coming on next, here's your path out. Here's how you can drive the profitability. And if the gross margin improves, as I believe the gross margin improvement, especially when you get the competitive position enhanced, is the greatest thing you can do to drive value in a company. That drops right to the EBITDA. You show it's consistent, the multiple improve, and the valuation takes off exponentially. So we continued down that path. The company eventually ended up being sold. Whether the ideas were adopted or not, I honestly don't know. Part of the reason we couldn't really share those in the selling process is when we're reflected, look, reflected bad current management, but that's someone else's issue. But we sat there and said, hey, this is viable. This is 100% viable. And, and it's a real passion because the coolest part of the whole thing was not necessarily the dollar impact, but when you watch people on the floor that were finally a part of this, we had the, the machine maintenance guys, we had the machine, the operators, we had the assembly mechanics, we had the assembly operators, all had a part in a say in it because they're the ones that were working around the problems and the issues on a daily basis. We gave them the support. You had guys high-fiving each other on the floor when you started seeing the turnaround. There was one woman that was in charge of an assembly machine. In this one machine, we had to run three shifts seven days a week and import goods from one of our sister companies to meet our demand. In the two months, by the time we were done, it was down to running two shifts a day, four days a week, and she wouldn't let anyone else near her machine. And it started out when we first started doing that work, she came in with a bag of rejects, put it on the table in front of me and said, we need a new machine. I said, just trust us. Let's go down this process for two months. And if we do, I'll be 100% behind it. By the time she was done, there was no way you were getting rid of her machine. And it just to watch that turnaround and to see the involvement and the enthusiasm of the people. And don't get me wrong. Everybody wants to make them. To watch what these people were able to achieve with the appropriate guidance. And I didn't come up with the solutions. They weren't my ideas. These were solutions that were running around the floors of machines that we had for 30 years. 
So it's fantastic to do it. And that's the genesis of what Tight Lines is about. Basically, the best way I could tell you is driving this profitability and value for a company with an organization that's upside down to the traditional triangle. My job is to support everybody else down there so they can be most effective as they can. And the last thing, and I swear I'll shut up and let you ask a question with it. But the last part of that is, Part of the, one of the tenets of what the Tight Lines advisor says is, as we go through this process and we get that gain in both the competitive position, therefore the revenue line, and most specifically the cost of goods, and it drives the valuation up. You take that gain in the cost of goods every year that the organization has been supportive of, put it on the new valuation of the company, and give that value back to the employees appropriate on the appropriate percentages in either real or synthetic equity. Because yes, they're going to be working less hours, but you give them back because you're not going to be able to achieve any of this without their input. So that's, that, that's where the dynamic is. And now you've got partners with you that are all focused on the same aspect of what it is you're doing, getting the obstacles of productivity out of the way. I think so, that's such an, yeah, I think that's such an important lesson right off the bat that when owners and leaders of companies really take into account their hourly employees input, because they know their job better than you know their job. And when they feel that they are a part of the greater mission, that they're able to make a difference, they are willing to give you so much more. And like you said, you also realize that there's an expectation of a return. So if employees are helping you to be more profitable, of course, the sharing in the profits, but when things don't turn, you know, when things aren't going well, at least the employees know there's that level of transparency, accountability, and it sounds like you really built in that that feeling of ownership with your people who were the lowest in the organization, but also the most important people in the organization. Weeks, weeks, how... Well, did that come home to us during the pandemic? In the manufacturing, it was a guy's uncle. They were coming every day when everyone else was, everyone else could afford to work from home. The manufacturing, you couldn't. And we saw it with the policemen and the supermarket guys and all the rest of it. They were the ones, they were the, right there facing the operation. This was, this idea and these concepts were formed before that. But okay, someone said, okay, I wouldn't have 100% of the value. Yep, yeah, you're not going to get anywhere near the value. It's a continual increase if you don't have their ideas. As you said, they're closest to what's going on. They're the ones that are dealing with the decisions the guys in the corner make on equipment they have. Our brilliant ideas, and I'm not disparaging the guys in the corner office. Don't get me wrong with that. But there's so many different things that are going on plants, and it's a lot of it is legacy stuff that, that they were given either poor design, et cetera, that we made them run. And it, and it looks like it, you had your first downturn, of course, in that 2008, and now we're facing some different challenges when it comes to the economic headwinds that currently exist. So what are you seeing as far as some of the biggest roadblocks to productivity and growth that manufacturers are facing today? And how would you recommend they overcome them? My biggest issue is the pervasiveness of the success of the private equity world. And that is not so much, and again, I don't want to paint them all with that same brush. You're familiar, you see how private equity works. They come back in, cost 
ripped out, et cetera. In the main corner office, basically the same thing we're talking about on the floor. You've got companies like you know, Newcor Steel or Danaher even, they're productivity-based, et cetera, and they perform well. But my, my, my biggest headwind is not even so much in operate. It's the operating philosophy. There's a line, if I can say it this way, go back to, you, you are probably not old enough to remember a gentleman named William E. Simon. Bill Simon was a treasury secretary under Gerald Ford and the energy secretary under Richard Nixon. But as treasury secretary, ironically, he also made his fortune as in the LBO of a company called Gibson Greeting Cards which was the progenitor of the whole private equity world. But his view and his quote, which I think is phenomenal, and I wish I had, under, I had known it while I was still operating before, before tight lines. And his, as a country, he was speaking of, the United States, that productivity and the growth of productivity should be the first two economic considerations at all times. It is through those two things that innovation, jobs, and wealth are created. Basically, if you can bear with me as I describe it this way, I'm using my two fingers. But if you can get more and more consistent output for less units of input, that's your gross margin line in between those two, that spread that gets better. That's what drops to the bottom line. That's where the value of the company is created. And over the last 20 years, I don't know if you're, it's one of the things I absolutely it's probably the only reason I have my subscription to the Wall Street Journal is for this quarterly productivity report. COVID aside, you can see over the last 17 or 18 years that while productivity is improving, the rate of productivity improvement is in decline. Hmm. And to me, that is because what has happened was everybody started chasing as they got more competitive, started losing productivity and China opened up and Mexico opened up. Everybody was chasing cheap labor and not going after the productivity side of it. And I'll say this, and I think this it could sound sarcastic or it could sound insincere, but when the previous glorious leader was down in Washington, the one that was just recently in New York yesterday, and he put the tariffs in to, to support manufacturing in the United States, I'm not a big tariff guy. I am. I, I, yes, I understand that it would help U.S. manufacturers to some point, but I think it's artificial because, you know, it, it puts the barrier on the inside, which really allows people that aren't into productivity to raise their prices. I think the biggest hit in the face was when we had the supply chain issues and we started realizing our dependence on uh, importing from Mexico or China or these further locations, there's, it's not that there's no cost. There's the manufacturing there, there's the freight, there's the logistics. That has to all be baked into it. But I think in the U.S. manufacturers, as they come back in and onshore, if they're coming from a lower labor rate area to a higher labor rate area where we are right now, a lot of guys are resistant to doing that because it's going to reflect poorly on their financials. The only way out is through productivity improvement. The, the, and if, if I might add, the one other aspect is, so I guess I'm saying the, the biggest headwind is changing our thinking, even more than economic aspects going on. The other thing that was going on that was the U.S. after World War II had three advantages. One was we had a growing population. We had a population that was getting older. So, you know, what we were buying was increasing, we had more people coming in. But we also had 
a dramatic improvement regularly in our productivity rates. We are getting older, but it's almost we're on a decline right now, population-wise. We're certainly not adding to the population. The only way we're out of, we can get out of this thing now is productivity. One last part is think of the huge amount of debt that the U.S. has right now because of what was necessary in most cases in COVID, through the COVID and all the rest of it, through COVID and all the rest of it, not the COVID. The only way we get out of this, I believe, is we have to become a net exporter again. Nobody's going to buy from us just because we're the United States. We have to compete on price, service, you know, the innovation side. The only way we can do that, remember we started off before you go after productivity, lead times reduced, on-time deliveries more competitive, external quality is there, reduce reduction of your or improvement in your gross margin line. Therefore, you can reduce your pricing. We have to export. The only way we can do that is to be competitive in what we're doing. The only way we can do that, I think, is through productivity. And the innovation and the innovation that'll give us. And when you look at some of these things, you're talking about tariffs and China and supply chain and the national debt. And some of those, sometimes it just feels so overwhelming because we feel as an individual manufacturer or organization that that's not something that we really have any control of. So when you're looking at the things that you know manufacturers themselves can control that over time will obviously benefit that big picture. But what does it take for an organization to do in their culture itself to generate that productivity really at all levels of the organization? First of all, I think you've got to go in even before you start collecting the data. As we were talking about before, about the people in the York, I think you got to go in with an intrinsic belief in the human spirit. I think you got to figure out there's some dirtbags out in this world. We all know that. But I think you got to believe that most people that are coming in to try to provide an income for themselves and their family are there for the right reasons. And they want to be part of something even bigger than themselves that they feel good about. Absolutely. So, so if you've got that, I think then is we use the system called the Demas system. I'm not the guy, Nick Demas now passed away to South Carolina, but it was a great way to keep track of. And I would recommend it for anyone to keep track of all the negatives. I like looking at the negatives because the positives to me, what your output was only positive out result in any daily production of what was there was only because of the absence of the negatives. If, if I can, So the more you can measure these negatives and go after it and organize your people in, in, in such a way to go after the biggest issues first, and it was non-financial, it was the amount of pieces lost in that series, the amount of pounds lost, it all translated to dollars. By the way, we're patenting this whole tight line system, the way it all rolls back into it. So you can come back and take how it affects the financials. But that's what I would do. Believe in your people. Start organizing a data collection so you can go back in and start looking at what the negatives are. Again, health and safety issues, material losses, downtime, qualitative issues. And then start organizing your key or best employees you think could help that to begin with and start working on the buy And it really does come down to company culture and what you're doing to connect those employees with the mission. And I know one of the techniques that you stress as being really important for creating a sustainable value creation is your inside-out approach. So talk about that. How does it work and what are some of the benefits that result from it? We really talked a lot about that already and what it is we're doing. It's the guys on the floor. It's getting the data on the internal side of it, being able to put it. We haven't even used 
terms like lean or six, whatever the appropriate methodologies are, you want to be able to go back in and to people in such a way to be able to do it. But, you know, we're doing is collecting the internal and external data that is there, bringing that back into the organization, let them having it and have it reflect both internally and financially and externally on the revenue and your competitive position. If I could, one other thing, you mentioned the sustainable growth. I know sustainable is a little bit different. We hear a lot about both pro and con on ESG, environmental, social, and governance. But you've heard from what we're talking about now is you know, in the environmental. If we're able to get more and more consistent output for less units of input, raw material, power, that works for the E in ESG. The social aspect is now we're bringing our employees in. Not only, by the way, not only are we compensating them, on this side of it. But the other thing that we're doing is we're raising their capabilities because they're part of the problem solving. They're learning more. The organization's capabilities are growing, but so are the employees' capability. And the governance is, comes back to the responsibility of the shareholders, leadership in the organization. Basically, as we talked about before, is that we're not dictating top down. Yes, you have to do that occasionally, but we're supporting the organization to be able to allow them to grow to hit the E and the S part of the ESG. And if so I think it's a, natu- it's a natural fallout of what we're doing as opposed to this thing you're trying to add in on top of. You're not right. painting yourself green. You really start operating this way. <clears throat> so if this is not the type of culture where you've had that inclusive of really getting the people involved with the mission, How do you start that conversation? What's the best way for somebody to get started to build that relationship so employees trust that this really is good for them first and good for the company? The best way to do that, in my opinion, is, uh, you'll forgive me, but good old greed. And what I mean by that is, and I don't think I sent it to you, and if anybody did want to get in touch with me, we have it available. But I've got a one pager of, and it's on the website, highlandsadvisors.com, a before and after, pro forma before and after financial state. And it's this is an example of a company before. This is an com- example of a company afterwards. And you start looking at the net income and the value creation. In a year, if you're able to do it, you can almost three times on the standard, normal, average you know, company running about a 50, 55% OEE. It's the greatest generation, baby boomer type of individual. Apologies for the phone. That's running, getting ready to walk out. Maybe the kids want to be involved. They're not involved. He's got the boats in the second house. They're really not driving performer. Hey, before you sell, you might really want to consider this. Do it for a year. You can get this thing bouncing up two or three times the value at the end of 12 months with more to come. And then on the backside of what it is, they can put in their own numbers. But usually someone sits there and says, wow, uh, I probably say some other words, but wow. You mean, look what, look what, look what can happen in a year. I say, yeah, but this is what, this is part of the methodology of what you're doing. But a lot of this, you're probably already collecting. People are working around the issues anyway. Let's get them organized. So we can go after these issues you have and drive this kind of value creation. Wow. So let's, as we start to get to the end of our time together, I want you to just take a look in your crystal ball. What do you think 
the economic landscape for manufacturing looks like in the next couple of years, one year, three years, five years. We, You mentioned AI before. That's certainly a big thing that's going on right now. But what are you saying? I think if you saw, it was yesterday's or two days ago, manufacturing report, not the productivity report, manufacturing report, it would look like it was a hell of a lot of headwinds. I think it was the lowest number they've had in six or eight years. Is it recession? Is it not recession, et cetera? And I understand, I do understand the concern and the issues with that, but I still sit there and think you can control some of what you're doing going through the process we, processes we're talking about. I, I, what is it really going to look like in three to five years? My greatest hope is we would, and it, yes, some of it's selfish. We buy into some of the concepts and the principles you and I are talking about today. I just think the viability would be great. And we could part of the enthusiasm, again, for the glorious leader in 2016 was he related to mid-America with all those factories that were shut and down and moved to China, et cetera. Yeah, we're moving them all back. But if we really want to make a difference somewhere, somehow, I, and again, I'm not giving you the clarity on that crystal ball. It's more of a hope. And a wish that as we go through this, some enlightened individual comes out and says, hey, let's go back and support the U.S. on the productivity aspects of what it is we're doing. We're supporting financially with whatever those deals are to be able to start driving this again so we can get ourselves in that position. The AI aspect of it, and even robotics, I'm all for it. What I would do before AI and robotics, again, is go through the process we're talking about to take the variation out of the system and get all the knowledge so we can understand what causes these issues, these qualitative issues, what causes a downtime, what causes the material loss. Get that in place so we know it, so we can program it into the robotics. Or we can certainly give that knowledge to the AI as a starting point so it's able to move forward. If you're gonna bring in and bring it into a system that's really not in control and bouncing around and doing all the rest of it, that's a lot of money to spend. The other thing is, if you do what we're talking about and get that cleaned up first, you're going to have the money to spend. You're not going to have to borrow. You're going to have to, have to go deeper into it. And then it can be more self-fulfilling. And so I know that in tight lines, you have a productivity system called the Performance Accelerator. So talk a little bit about that. What is it and how does it help? The Performance Accelerator is really what we do is we come in, we do analysis similar to what we talked about before. We sit down with the organization, walk through the financial aspect of what's there, and then we'll come back and say, okay, what kind of data collection do you have? What are we? So the second phase is we start, we, uh, once there's agreement that some value can be created, come back in and say, okay, what are we doing with the data? How do we start looking? If they don't have it, we, it might be a couple of months that we have to do start collecting it because you don't you, can't, you don't want to take a snapshot every day and react to that. You want to be able to look at something over a period of time. And as we start putting that together, then we start seeing and we start talking to the individuals on the floor. So you find out who the leaders are with the organization, of course. We're not doing this without. We start putting our groups together and we start going after. In the first three, two to three months at that point, we get our first successes that are going through and we start going on to the next one. By then, we come into the budget year at that point, the fourth phase, and we start saying, okay, now we're going to start putting this out. We've got all these gains. We're going to reflect that in the budget. We've got all the rest of these in the works. We got more coming. We're going to keep that on the side as we're going. That's the rainy day fund as we keep going back in. And we're going to find more of these as we go through it. Maybe not as great an impact, 
But by that point, you should start seeing a little improvement. Your sales guy, your customers are going, hey, I don't know what you guys did. Your lead time's better, on time's better. We don't have the qualitative issues before. We actually had some customers who were about ready to throw us out. And we went through this process. They said, we don't know what it is you're doing, but not only are we not throwing you out, we're doubling down on you. So we, of course, walked them through what's in there. So that's the performance accelerator process. And once you start going into it, at the end of the year, and by your second year as you're going through it, then it's okay. We're generating some pretty good cash. You've got the you've got the other cash coming out because inventories are reduced, operations are closer. What are some complementary businesses we can be looking at? Not necessarily competitive, acquire competitive, but what can we do complementary with our base processes that we can be back in so we can be more of a, a complete basket of offerings to our customers in that world? So that's the process we go through the performance accelerator. And if somebody did want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Tightlinesadvisors.com is the website. And my 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 personal cell phone doesn't exactly ring right here because I'm in North Stanford and we got no cell coverage. But the, uh, the cell number is 914-282-3469. 914-282-3469. Wonderful. John, it has been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining me. Lisa, it was great. Thank you so very much. And if anything else keeps evolving, I got more to talk about. We'll reach out. I'd love to be back. That sounds great. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.